You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Today's teaching from The Greatest Story is entitled, To Dwell Among. Good evening, friends. Welcome to week five. Tonight is one of my favorite lessons. I feel like I'm not really allowed to say that. It's like admitting you have a favorite kid, but it's the truth. This is one of my favorite themes. Um, Instead of building up to the main point, I'm going to give it to you first, right out of the gate. You started to deal with this in your homework. God desires to dwell among us. His presence is the most important and the most precious aspect of his kingdom. This isn't just an abstract spiritual concept. This is about being reconciled to God through Christ, indwelt by the Spirit, and looking forward to physically dwelling with him in the new heavens and new earth. Maybe the glory of that is striking to you, and maybe it's just not. Maybe it just sounds like a bunch of Christianese, or you're desensitized to this, or maybe you're just weary from the day, and this feels like something that's just a million miles away right now. But I want to meet you wherever you're at. And we're going to walk through this together tonight and recover the wonder of this truth. One of the biggest reasons that we lose sight of this, I think, is just living in this temporal world. So first of all, you have a culture that is confused about spirituality, to say the least. It's either that everything's relative or it's completely discredited altogether. And then there's the reality of life's demands. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about God dwelling among us when your car breaks down and your mom needs surgery and the checkbook doesn't balance. But it's in exactly those places where the Lord longs to meet us. And may I remind you that our Savior also shares in our humanity. So his heart for you in the tension of feeling like you're pulled in a million different directions in this paradox of the physical world and the spiritual world is compassionate. It's not demanding. So let's try to cut out some of the noise of everyday life tonight and just recover and refocus on the beauty of our Lord. If I were to summarize the entire Bible in three words, it would be God with us. I mean, think of it. That is ultimately the goal of all of this redemption story. God with us is not just for Christmas time. It's the very heartbeat of our creator. So here again is what I consider to be God's intent for creation. To fill the world with his glory by establishing his kingdom among and through his people. The emphasis is on among tonight. This begins in the Garden of Eden as we've learned. Before sin, God and humanity had that perfect unbroken relationship. And after sin, the relationship was severed. The worst part about Adam and Eve having to leave Eden was that they had to leave the very presence of God. Ever since the fall, there has been a vast chasm that separates sinful man from a holy God. Now before we go any further, we need to have an understanding of holiness or nothing else I say tonight is going to make sense. Here's a definition for you. See how this compares uh, to what you found in your homework. Exalted or worthy of complete devotion as one perfect in goodness and righteousness. So that's the English dictionary. And then specifically for the believer, it tacked on this second part, likeness of nature with God 
and thereby different from the world, set apart. The crucial thing we need to see here is that we were born with a sinful nature that opposes the Lord's holiness, hence the chasm. We can't just make amends and close the gap. These natures are like trying to cram two magnets together that no amount of force is going to bring them together. Yet despite this chasm, God still desires to dwell among us. And as we've seen, his purposes are not thwarted by sin. But in order for his intentions to become a reality, the sin needs to be dealt with. Not just ignored, that would deny his justice and his holiness, but dealt with. We know that this chasm is eventually bridged by the person and work of Jesus Christ. But he's the culmination of the plan. He's the climax of the story. So we can't get ahead of ourselves, all right? We've got to go back and follow this thread all the way through. All right, so 10-second interview. After the fall, we're left with a severed relationship with God. Nothing's ever going to be the same. We talked about humanity's corruption and the flood in Genesis 6. And then even though Noah was kind of a fresh start in a sense, that corruption just continued. And we had the downward spiral until we get to Babel in Genesis 11. When all seemed lost, we turn over the page to Genesis 12 and meet Abram. And we enter the era of the patriarchs. God setting his grace and his favor upon a people group through whom he would accomplish his purpose. And it was through Jacob's sons, particularly Joseph, that the Israelites ended up in Egypt. They experienced prosperity and protection. But then the new Pharaoh came to power and was threatened by them, so he enslaved them. 400 years go by. God remembers his covenant, hears their cries, brings them up and out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Now it's time for them to embrace this new identity as a nation a people marked off as God's treasured possession. And one of the very first things that God does is he enters covenant with them at Mount Sinai through Moses. What is God's heart in this covenant? That's what we're going to focus on tonight. It's through this covenant that he makes provision for the holiness divide, which is like the elephant in the room. The sin must be dealt with so that God can dwell among his people in kingdom. The covenant that came through Moses is usually referred to as the old covenant. This is in contrast, of course, to the new covenant in Christ. And remember I said how each covenant marks a progression in the story? So we had that honorary covenant um, that God had with Adam and Eve in Eden. And then we have the first official covenant with Noah. And then we looked at Abram last week. And now we're at the covenant through Moses. Okay, so each one, starting out really broad, is getting more and more specific. There are several Old Testament covenants, but this one is unique in that it was made with an entire group of people instead of just an individual. So for the first time, God is setting apart an entire group of people, not just one man, to be set apart and to be a nation for himself. So what passage comes to mind when I say Old Covenant? Ten Commandments. Thank you. Exodus 20. And these Ten Commandments are essentially the building blocks of God's law, as he declared in the Old Covenant. So remember last week we talked about Noah's, or two weeks ago I guess, Noah's era being literal lawlessness. 
one of the main functions of the law is to restrain evil. It's like, here's your standard of right and wrong. If you adhere to this, there will be life. If you do not, there will be death. Even though the laws of our land may be drifting a bit from righteousness, the concept of law in general is a good thing. That is something that's from God himself. And unlike law written by humans, God's law is perfect. The ultimate standard of righteousness. I just read through Psalms 119 again recently and I was like, man, I want to love God's law like David did. And how do we get there? Or at least one step closer? It's by seeking his heart in the law. Otherwise, it'll just seem like a bunch of rules. These Ten Commandments serve as a template for the entire law, which is about 613 laws, according to the interwebs. I did not count them. But that's really significant, right? That's a huge part of God's revelation and his relationship with his people, so we need to pay attention. By the way, you're about to get some exclusive access to Exodus Part 2 that's coming in January. So save your notes. It's coming back around, okay? So let's look at this template of the law. I want you to think about this in two categories, all right? Vertical uh, commands that regard the vertical relationship between God and man and commands that regard the horizontal relationship with mankind to one another, all right? So... Tell me what you think each one of these is. I'm going to buzz down through. Give me the sign. Okay. Vertical. Horizontal. You ready? Okay. You shall have no other gods before me. I gave it away. Okay. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet. Do you see? These commands clearly state what is pleasing to God, but additionally, this is how he's designed human life to flourish. This is what it looks like to be in right relationship with God and then also right relationship with one another. And then all 613 laws spring out of this heart and build a framework for life. So you have your big overarching categories of vertical or horizontal relationship. And I would also add that horizontal, that also means that we're in right relationship with the rest of creation, okay, not just humans. But that n the next layer here is gonna get a little more specific as we see how God is guiding his people into holiness. And as we go through this, I want you to think, how is this revealing God's character? How is this revealing his heart? We have three basic categories that we can funnel just about all of those Old Testament laws into. Now, in function, some of these overlap each other, okay? It's not perfect, but I think it's helpful to see the distinctions. So first of all, we have ceremonial. Can you read that little print? How to worship and relate to God. This includes all the guidelines for sacrifices and offerings and feasts. We got the priesthood in here, the cleanliness code, you know, clean and unclean. That's all ceremonial, relating to their worship of God. Secondly, we have civil. How to practically live in a civilization or society. God is teaching them how to honor one another, how to resolve problems, maintain justice, how to be responsible. 
Society literally cannot function without a standard of law. And then lastly, we have the moral law. How to represent God's righteous character. God has set forth a clear standard of right and wrong. And his people were to mirror his righteousness in their conduct. We need to read the Old Testament law looking for God's heart. Otherwise, it's just going to seem really boring or irrelevant. Probably both. Sometimes his heart is obvious, right? You read something like, do not murder. And you're like, okay, yeah, I got that. That makes sense. And then there's these other obscure laws like, do not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And we're like, what? By the way, you got to tune into Exodus part two to get the answer to what that means. I'm just kidding. There's not really a great answer, okay? But the, the possible explanations we came, that we found when we were studying, actually like, okay, this does actually fit into this framework. The law reveals God's character and his heart for his people. It is his code for holiness. Is holiness a communicable attribute? Not at me. Yes. It's one of the tricky ones that we're kind of like, it is. Um, in last week's reflection questions, there was a little blurb about the difference between positional holiness and progressive holiness. Did you read that? And to connect that into the order of salvation, um, positional holiness occurs at the point of justification, okay? That's when we come to saving faith in God and we're made right through Christ. We are positionally holy and blameless in Christ. And then progressive holiness happens during sanctification, being conformed to his image is essentially the same thing as our holiness definition. That we are growing in likeness of nature with God. This is our reality post the cross and indwelt by the Spirit. But it looked a little different for our Israelite brothers and sisters. Their faith in God was credited to them as righteousness, but then their faith was worked out or proven by keeping the law. This was their standard for holiness God has set this forth for his people. So let me first tell you what's beautiful about this. God had provided a thorough explanation of how they were to accomplish the purpose that he's setting out for them. We looked at Exodus 19, 5 and 6 about uh, just his heart for Israel. And one of the things that he refers to them as is a holy nation. How do you be a holy nation? Well, let me tell you, here's a law. It's going to show you how to be a holy nation. Holiness means you will conduct yourself in a certain way, both in your individual life and then also in society that will radiate God's character. And you will flourish in right relationship with him, with others, and with creation. This is life the way he intended. And when you're living in alignment with God, other people are going to notice because it's going to look different than the world. That's that set-apart piece. So this is both for your good and to manifest the glory of God to the world. And the most important thing in all of this, if sinful people can be made holy, then God and man can be brought back together again. That's what we're after. But here's the bad news. The people couldn't keep the law. The covenant through Moses, unlike the ones before, was a two-way street. So God had a responsibility, and the people had a responsibility. We could not, cannot, keep up our end of the deal. In this covenant, God clearly communicated the blessings for obedience 
and the curses for disobedience. You know how when a parent is training a young child and they're like, you may not touch the stove or you're going to have a timeout. Like it's clear as day, right? And the child's like, and you're like, oh, are you kidding me? But it's so telling of our sinful nature. This is what we do, okay? We saw it from Eve. We're going to see it from the Israelites again. There are very real consequences for disobedience. And it's not because God is a dictator. It's because he's a loving father. Again, not only for his glory, but also your good. Conversely, let's take a look at the blessings that he's extending to them in Deuteronomy 28. Do you want to turn there a while? These are the blessings that Israel is ultimately going to forfeit by their disobedience. The whole book of Deuteronomy is essentially retelling the Israelites their story and reiterating the law of God. It's like Moses is just stamping this on the inside of their eyelids before they go into the promised land. This is who you are. Don't forget All right, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 of Deuteronomy 28. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, the fruit of the ground, the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in. Blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. He will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your livestock, the fruit of the ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give you rain to your land in its seasons and to bless all the work of your hands. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. That sounds pretty good, right? But I'm just going to be honest, this formula of obedience and blessings just kind of rubs me the wrong way because it reminds me of the prosperity gospel that we're facing in the world today. Do you know this one? If I obey God or do X, Y, and Z, then he will bless me with all the good things and make everything go well for me. But we know this isn't true, so how do we make sense of this? God's intent was not just to give them an easy life of comfort and abundance. Or was it? We can be so quick to deny that the heresy of today, rightfully so, that we miss the big picture. Remember, this is all about his kingdom. Do you think the final kingdom of the new heavens and new earth that we have to look forward to will be marked by comfort and abundance? Yeah, I think so. Even better than Eden, whole and complete, lacking nothing. This verbiage just makes me think of that. So God laid out these conditional promises as a glimpse of what could be. But again, 
were unable to meet the conditions of the covenant. He knew that. They were never going to get there on their own. And really, if this was all up to us, these promises would have remained unfulfilled forever. The biblical gospel says you can't meet the standard. So God, or Christ, has done so on your behalf as your representative. And in him, you are given all the riches that heaven has to offer. And that is far better than being a millionaire. It is sin that contaminates God's blessings. It's not that the blessings themselves are bad, but it's the sin. So that we begin to love the gifts instead of the giver. But in the new heavens and new earth, we'll be free from the very presence of sin. That means we'll be able to enjoy God rightly for all of his beauty and all of his blessings the way that he intended. Also, anytime we talk about the law on this side of the cross, the question comes up, but we're not under the law anymore, right? Well, yes and no. It's true that keeping the law doesn't earn us salvation or merit in the same way that they thought about it in the Old Testament. Christ obeyed every last letter of the law. It didn't just dissolve. He obeyed every last letter, and he fulfilled it. He checked it off. But there are actually more commands in the New Testament. Do you realize that? 1,050. Again, thanks to whoever counted that. Just like the Old Testament, these commands reveal God's heart and his will for our lives. And it turns out that obedience is actually a huge part of sanctification. He's not only to be our Savior, but also to be our Lord. This is what this means, that we bend the knee to his Lordship and agree, hey, you know what? You actually do know what's best, and I'm going to live accordingly. So how do we determine which laws still apply and which ones we can just... This is where those categories are helpful, okay? The ceremonial and the civil laws, largely, again, there's overlap in how these are categorized, but largely apply specifically to the Israelites in their time in history and their culture. But the moral laws transcend time because they are based on God's character, and God's character doesn't change. Think of how often Jesus said, you have heard that it was said. You have heard that it was said. But I tell you. He was revealing the heart of the law that has been there this whole time. What did Jesus state are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, love your as yourself. Right. Do you see that? It's proper alignment to God and proper alignment to one another. It seems like we've worked our way to the New Testament again. This happens every time we try to trace a thread through the story. So we got to go back to the Israelites and pick it up with the Old Covenant again. I left you with the bad news that they were incapable of keeping the law, incapable of holiness. But yet even in that time in history, God provided a temporal means for bridging that holiness divide. Knowing that his people wouldn't be able to keep the law that he was setting out for them, he made a way to deal with the sin that plagued them. Like I said before, it couldn't just be swept under the rug. It needed to be atoned for. 
All right, had you look up at this definition in your homework as well. Here's the one I use. The act of giving satisfaction for a wrong committed for the purpose of making amends. So a wrong has been committed against an offended party and there needs to be some sort of retribution to satisfy the offended's wrath. And it's through justice that harmony is restored to the relationship and the two parties can again be brought together. May I remind you, God is the offended party in our sin. He owes humanity nothing considering our crimes of treason against the high king. Yet even here, he provided a means of atonement alongside of his law that he knew his people couldn't keep. Don't even tell me that God is not merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love in the Old Testament. Within the ceremonial law, God instated a sacrificial system and a priesthood to atone for the sins of his people. And he instructed them to build a magnificent tent called the tabernacle that would be his dwelling place. The point of the old covenant is to bridge the holiness divide, albeit temporarily, so that God could dwell with his people. Let's look for God, God's heart in these provisions, all right? First of all, the sacrificial system. Now, there are a lot of different sacrifices and offerings in the law. Some of them are free will offerings, thank offerings, tithes, and then you have the opposite side of the coin, right? The, the sin, the atonement, the guilt offerings. Even in the way that Israel uh, made sacrifices to their God, they looked starkly different than the pagans that surrounded them. Unlike us, perhaps, they lived in a highly spiritualized culture where everybody believed that there was a divine and they operated accordingly. The pagans would perform these crazy rituals to their pantheon of gods in an attempt to earn their favor so that they would bless them or be favorably disposed to them. I mean, this was some really grotesque stuff like child sacrifice and self-mutilation and prostitution. But Yahweh says, you will not worship me in that way. Instead, he instituted a system of animal sacrifice for the atonement of sin. The wages of sin is death. So something has to die. Life blood needs to be shed to atone for the sin. And if you have that knee-jerk reaction of like, well, that seems cruel, like the animal didn't do anything, you're exactly right. The animal was an innocent substitute for a guilty people. And that should sound awfully familiar. From Adam and Eve's coverings of skin to the ram that God provided Abraham instead of Isaac, to the Passover lamb in Egypt, the night of the Exodus, to the thousands of gallons of blood that were shed in the tabernacle and the temple. All of it was setting the stage for God's final gracious provision for sin. Jesus would willingly offer his innocent life in place of ours, finally satisfying the wrath of God once for all. He's the true and better sacrifice. Secondly, God provided a priesthood. 
I mentioned this last week, but the primary role of a priest is to mediate the relationship between God and man. So this too is a grace. The tribe of Levi was appointed to be priests, and then they were given copious amounts of instructions of what to wear, what to do, how to act. Of all the scores of priests, there's only one high priest, and he's only allowed to enter the actual presence of the Lord once a year. And this was a room in the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place. Getting to perform this sacrifice annually was a great honor, but it was also terrifying. Everyone understood the magnitude of this task. In fact, according to tradition, they would tie a rope around the guy's ankle so that if he dropped dead in the presence of the Lord, they could pull him out. Like nobody would dare step foot behind the curtain. And in this too, God is establishing this muscle memory of the chasm between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of his people. But yet it was his mercy that he allowed one man to represent him to the people and to enter his presence with the atoning blood of an animal. Christ is not only the true and better sacrifice, he's the true and better high priest. He's the only true mediator between God and man. And he entered the presence of God on our behalf with his own lifeblood to atone for our sins. All of the temporary provisions that God made in the priesthood and the sacrificial system find their fulfillment in Christ. That's what he meant when he said, it is finished. But lest we forget the context that brings us all together, the sacrificial system and the priesthood were functions of the tabernacle. All of these pieces of the old covenant were grace so that a holy God could be with his people in kingdom. The tabernacle was so much more than a tent. It was like a shadow or a copy of God's heavenly throne. He had every right to care about the length of curtains and what metal was used where because his presence was about to descend. So let's follow this thread from the beginning. It's one of my favorites. In Eden, God dwelt among mankind enjoying unhindered communion before sin. And then after the fall, humans were repelled, expelled from his presence. And it wasn't until the tabernacle that his presence again took up residence with his people. But all that we talked about this evening, the extensive provisions that made that possible, continue to magnify God's holiness in contrast to our sin. Despite this chasm, however, he made a way to dwell among through the grace of the Old Covenant. This was all a temporary arrangement, however, in more ways than one. The tabernacle had to be mobile because the people were still on the move. They just came out of slavery. They're headed for the promised land. But when they finally settled into the promised land, King Solomon built a permanent structure, a temple, for the Lord's dwelling place. Now, this was arguably the highest point in Israel's history. It seemed like all of God's promises were being fulfilled. God was dwelling among his people in kingdom. But this wasn't the end at all. We know that. God's people would persist in unfaithfulness until he finally brought judgment upon them by the exile. They were taken from their beloved promised land and the Lord's temple was destroyed. This wasn't just a slap on the wrist. The removal of his presence is just like the gut punch of Genesis 3. 
everything had been lost, will the Lord ever be able to dwell among his people? And even when the people eventually returned to the land and they started rebuilding the temple, it was never the same. God's presence never returned to that place. But that temple of mortar and stone was never meant to be the finish line. Even in that beautiful building, the people were still separated from God's presence. The curtains still hung. For God to truly dwell among his people as in Eden, our sin needed to be dealt with for good. This brings us to Jesus Christ, the true and better temple. It's in his very self that God and mankind could be brought together. This is why he was so upset at the misuse of the temple. His perfect life fulfilled the law. His substitutionary death fulfilled the sacrifice. And his, and his priestly mediation brought final reconciliation. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt in the Greek means to tabernacle, to set up camp. Emmanuel, God with us. And after Christ's earthly ministry was complete, he returned to the Father. He's no longer here in bodily form. But he did not leave us alone. In John 16, Jesus said, it's actually to your advantage if I go away so that I can send the helper. And after Jesus returned to heaven, he sent his spirit, God's very presence, to dwell among all who would be joined to him by faith. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that our bodies are now temples of the Spirit. And additionally, in 1 Peter, we learn that together, as the people of God, we are being built into a spiritual house, the Lord dwelling with his church. But this gets even better. Though our sin has been atoned for, we still battle its presence in everyday life. But there is a day coming when the very presence of sin will be destroyed and we will once again enjoy unhindered communion with God. Revelation 21:22 says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. There's no temple necessary because God's there and we will be with him. And Revelation 21, 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And guess what that Greek word is for dwell there? It's tabernacle. God dwelling with us, us with him for eternity. What has been his heart from the very beginning finally brought to completion in the kingdom of the new heavens and new earth. The spirit and the bride say, come, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we long for the day. And we um, ascribe that your presence is the most important thing that we need. We have no semblance of an understanding of what it means to be human if it's not connected to you and rightly oriented to life by your design. God, thank you for persevering with this sinful mankind over and over and over again. Your plan went forward 
in mercy, grace, and faithfulness. Christ, thank you for fulfilling the old covenant, for ushering in a new covenant in your blood where we can be freed of the burden of the law and instead joyfully obey as your children. Thank you for the spirit that we have your very presence dwelling within us. And Father, we just confess the ways that this slips our mind. There's so many things that pull our attention off of you and just this reality. But Father, will you use this truth to just sink deeply into our hearts, renew our minds. And when we're in those moments of tension and just feel so bogged down by the physical world, will you just, Spirit, encourage our hearts, lift our eyes, lift our heads. Help us to remember this sweet truth so that we know what's coming. We know where we're headed. We long to be with you. And while we wait, we work backwards out of that. Father, give us faith to endure. We long to be used by you as we wait to be with you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.